as this being our last RUF, I just want to say um, thank you all for this year. It has been such a sweet year as I've been reflecting on it. And to tell you that um, just how much I love you, um, how much I, I love getting to be a part of your lives and getting to, um, uh, to see you grow up and to see uh, um, you come to just wrestle with, with the claims of Christianity and see stuff happen in you. And um, so thank you. Thank you for the privilege it's been this year to be your campus minister. Um, what we're going to do tonight is uh, what we always do. We're going to read um, from the Bible together, and I'm going to talk about it for a few minutes. And what we're going to read from tonight is on the back of your bulletin. We're going to read from Jeremiah uh, chapter 29, um, and then... Um, We'll go from there. So this is Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14. This is God's word for us tonight. It's completely true, and he gives it to us in love. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the, head, by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its peace you will find your peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets... And your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for peace and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. You will seek me with all your heart. I will be be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, gather you from the nations and all the places where I have given you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Um, So a question for us to begin with tonight is, uh, have you ever felt stuck where you are? I mean, maybe you feel stuck here at Wake Forest. Um, maybe you feel stuck in this last few weeks of school. Or maybe um, you feel stuck where you live. You feel stuck on your hall. Or maybe you feel stuck in your sorority or your fraternity. Um, you feel stuck in your friend group. Um, maybe you're, uh, you, you feel stuck with what you're doing this summer. Uh, really, the question is, have you ever felt unha- unhappy with life because of your physical place? And... Um, if you haven't already, uh, you will have at least one dark night where you will cry, cry out, why am I here? And not in the existential meaning of, like, why am I here, but why am I here? Like, why am I here in this physical place, this place? Why am I here at Wake Forest? Um, and you feel stuck. 
I remember feeling this a lot in college. I went to Tulane in New Orleans, um, and I always had this love-hate relationship with the school and with the city of New Orleans. Uh, I, tried to, I tried to transfer out uh, my freshman year and didn't get in to the schools I tried to transfer out to, so I stayed, and uh, I felt stuck. And, um, you know, New Orleans is built below sea level, and so it was always talked about how... Um, how if the right storm hit in the right way, the city would be underwater. And I remember driving through the city in college and like looking out the window and thinking like, huh, God, would you, <laughs> would you throw a hurricane at New Orleans? Um, turns out that's a really dangerous prayer to, put, uh, prayer to, to pray. Um, because the summer before my senior year of college, um, I'd gone back to New Orleans a few days early for... I uh, was going on a retreat with some friends at a house about a, an hour east of New Orleans. And we got word on Saturday that a hurricane was coming. And um, we didn't uh, – um, we, we had a hurricane every fall. Like I got a week off from school every fall because of a hurricane break. And so we thought, hey, this isn't a big deal. But this was a big one coming, so we went ahead, went back and got back to my, my house and saw that my roommates were packing up. They are going to their friend, uh, one of my friends' house about two hours west. And so I – Packed up and went with them, and then Sunday night, Hurricane Katrina hit. Um, and uh, as you know, um, Monday night, uh, the, the levees broke and the city flooded, and by Wednesday, school had been canceled for the semester. And by Friday, I was on the road back north, back to Virginia, where I'm from, um, enrolled in the University of Virginia for the semester. Um, and obviously, my situation is unique, right? Because for most of us, when we feel stuck and we pray, God doesn't cause a natural disaster to free us from the place where we feel stuck. Um, But uh, tonight in our passage, the Israelites felt stuck. Um, And as we look at this passage together, I want us to see two things in this. Um, Some of the ways that we try to to remedy our problem of feeling stuck, and then we're going to see the solution that God provides to our feeling of being stuck. So first, the ways in which we try to remedy our situation. So how did the exiles feel stuck? I think it's near impossible for us to underestimate how awful the Babylonian exile was for Israel. God's people, um, starting with Abraham, God made this promise to Abraham that he was going to be their God and give them a land. He's going to give them a place, give them a home. And because of their disobedience to God's law um, in their hearts and in their actions, they received the curse from the law of the law, and they were exiled. They're exiled out of their place. They were conquered by the Babylonians and marched from Jerusalem, Jerusalem to Babylon. Their houses were burned to the ground. Their gardens and their farms were destroyed. Their city, Jerusalem, and its temple were literally torn apart. Unspeakable evil was done to their friends and their relatives, and then they're brought to Babylon and were forced to live there in the land of their captors. And they were conquered people. They were forcibly removed from their land, and they couldn't do anything about it. And not only that, the place where they were settled was almost uninhabitable. They were settled along these broken down, unused canals, which had deteriorated into swampland. These canals were infested with malaria and mosquitoes, and the, hum, the, hum, the summer heat was so high, and the humidity was so high, the summer heat was around 120 degrees. And so Jeremiah wrote from Jerusalem to the exiles in Babylon, urging them, in the midst of feeling stuck, to live a normal life. Now, that's really hard when you feel stuck, and they felt stuck. 
So what do we do when we feel stuck? Well, there's um, two things I want to point out tonight that we do when we feel stuck. The first is that we try to live above place. And the second is that we try to seek a private peace. So first, we try to live above place. Um, Living above place. This is a term that comes from a book called The New Parish, which is about neighborhood church planning. And what it is, living above place, names the tendency that we have to develop structures that keep cause and effect relationships far apart in space and time. So we can't have firsthand experience of them. A good example for this is us is buying groceries. Um, we don't know most of the time where the food originated, right? We don't know the names or stories of the people involved in the production and delivery process. Like we might have a cute farm on the side of our eggs, but we don't really know if that's where our eggs came from, right? Or like the, the sweet cow with the farmer petting him on the side of the milk. Like probably not, right? But we, we don't have any sense of where our, our groceries actually come from. Um, this would have been impossible and unimaginable before refrigerated trucking and the highway system. So it's really only been possible within the past hundred years um, to have this relationship where, where we don't know where our stuff is produced. Living above place describes the process where this type of separation happens so frequently that we become disoriented to reality. Living above place disconnects us from the effects of our actions. It enables us to concoct visions regarding the welfare of others without ever being in relationship with them. Shane Claiborne writes this. He says, it's not that we don't care about the poor. It's just that we Christians don't know the poor. Living above place makes it possible for us to imagine that if we pay a tax, the government will take care of people. Or possible to imagine that... um, an individual over there should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and make their own way without needing others. So how do we experience living above place? Um, I think the best way, the best example we have is our preferred mode of transportation. We drive. I mean, Winston-Salem was built after the advent of the automobile. And my guess is most of the places where you all live at home, um, unless you live in a major city, the city was built after the advent of the car, after 1920. Um, or so. And so your experience of a place has always been above it. It's always been going from one place to another and not actually going through the neighborhoods um, within that place. That's what the, the I-40 downtown does. It allows us to, in Silas Creek, they allow us to go places without actually traveling through the place that we're going. And this isn't just with our cars, but it's with everything. Um, and this can happen here. This can happen at Wake when we are unaware of the people and the stories that make this place run. Um, when we uh, live above place, when we just go from class to Starbucks to the library to the pit um, to our meeting back to our dorm without ever being aware of the people who work here to actually make this place um, make this place run. So how does God answer Israel's desire to live above place? Look at verses 5 and 6. God says to them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. He's saying... Don't live above place. Root yourself in the place where you live. So the second thing we do when we feel stuck is that we seek a private peace. We seek a private peace. We think, if I'm going to be stuck here, I might as well make it the best for me and my people. So we try to establish peace and flourishing for ourselves. And we're willing to help others as long as it doesn't cost us anything. We can even take the call from God to build houses and plant gardens and privatize it. I mean, we have an entire industry built on this. Um, Private homes and gardens. We've got magazines. We've got a TV channel, HGTV. We've got stores, Home Depot. I mean, I know y'all aren't at this stage yet, but 
Home Depot makes for a, a big Saturday when you get a little older. Um, uh, right? All of this is dedicated to the privatization of our peace. And I think this is one of the ways that we can use the gates of Winston-Salem to insulate us from our neighbors, or the gates of Wake Forest to insulate us from our neighbors at Winston-Salem. Right? You can spend four years here and not know that Winston-Salem is a place. Right? And not know the stories of the place and the people um, who inhabit it. And this was a temptation for the Israelites in exile. They were in Babylon. And God says that there will be no peace for them unless it includes their neighbors. And so instead of a private peace, God says this in verse 7. He says, seek the peace of the city of your exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its peace, you will find your peace. So we try to remedy our situation by living above place when we feel stuck. By living above place, by seeking a private peace. Um, and here's how God provides a remedy for a situation. And to the exiles who feel stuck in Babylon, he says, root yourselves. Root yourselves. Verses 5 and 6 would have sounded very familiar to the ears of the first audience. This build houses and plant gardens. Because in it, they would have heard echoes of Eden. Genesis 1 and 2 tells the story of God as king creating the heavens and the earth. We're told that he builds the universe and he dwells in it. And he plants a garden in Eden. And in Genesis 2, we're told that God made man from the earth. And the Hebrew for man is Adam. And the Hebrew for earth is Adamah. So what it literally says is God made Adam from the Adamah. Like the word for man and earth are so connected. It's telling us that we, we're made of the earth. We, we are earthlings. Like this is who we are um, as humans, human embodiment and place are inseparable. And so what Genesis 1 and 2 is telling us that it is incomprehensible to try to make sense of being human apart from the ground, apart from a physical place. Place is essential to being human. I mean, look at the language from Genesis 1 and 2 picked up here by Jeremiah. Right, what is he calling the exiles to do? He's calling them to pursue their human calling. Houses and gardens, be fruitful and multiply. Basically saying, be human. In exile, fulfill that which God has called you to do. And in creation, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, pursuing rootedness makes sense. Because Adam and Eve were made out of the Garden of Eden. Right? They're actually made out of the stuff of the Garden of Eden. They're made out of dirt and the breath of God. But we know that the story doesn't end there. We hear in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve disobey God. That they sin and they're exiled from the Garden of Eden. And their sin severed and broke their relationship with God, and with themselves, and with each other, and with, the, with creation. And they were dislocated east of Eden. And it's really hard to pursue this calling to root yourself outside of Eden. Now this call to root yourself, you might be might asking yourself, um, but what if you know that you're moving soon? Right? What if you know that you're only going to be here for two weeks? I mean, are you aware of how temporary place can feel? I mean, especially in college, right? How do you root yourself when you know that you won't be here forever? About five years ago, um, Mary Clark and I were living in Richmond, and um, I was finishing up seminary, and we were figuring out our post-seminary plans. And Mary Clark was on a walk with a friend in our neighborhood, and she was in angst over our place. Um, And she remembers just exhaling and saying to this friend, "Um, it is not worth putting tulip bulbs in the ground if I'm not going to be here in the spring. Basically asking, why should I invest in the place if I know I'm not going to stay there? 
Martin Luther, uh, the great German reformer, once, was once asked, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? And Luther replied, I'd plant an apple tree. Basically, I'd do what I was going to do anyways. So we moved to Winston about three years ago, and they say that moving is one of the top five most stressful things you will do as a human. Um, Mary Clark and I didn't believe they, whoever they are, and um, turns out they're right. It is uh, incredibly um, stressful, and we experienced something called uh, transplant shock, or I like to call it transplant shock. And transplant shock is when you move a plant, um, the first year that it's in the new place, it just looks like it's dead. Um, it doesn't grow any, any leaves or any, any flowers. And then after a while, it starts settling back into the place. Um, got the definition from Google, what transplant shock is. And it says, it's a term that refers to a number of stresses occurring in recently transplanted trees and shrubs. It involves a failure of the plant to root well. Consequently, the plant becomes poorly established in the landscape. So we've been here three years. Um, and this is year three. And it finally feels like we live here. And we know that it will still take time to root well here, to become established in the landscape. And I don't know where this is hitting y'all tonight. Um, You may be stuck in your place only temporarily, like some of you are, are going to new places very soon. But know that God is calling you to root yourself in your place as long as you were there. Our call as Christians is to pursue a temporary permanence wherever we are, a temporary permanence. So to the exiles who feel stuck in Babylon, God says, root yourselves. And he says, seek the public peace of the city. He says in verse 7, seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Peace here is this Hebrew word shalom. Um, And it's not a ceasefire. I mean, often when we think of peace, right, we just think of nobody's fighting right now. But the peace that this is talking about is so much more than that. It's um, a picture of fullness and flourishing and, um, and people living to the f- their full capacity as humans. And the picture of peace the Bible paints is one where people are rightly related to God and to themselves and to each other and to the creation. This is from a theologian. He says this about shalom. He says, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is the restoration of all things under God's gracious rule. So God is telling the Israelites in exile that their peace, their shalom, is to be sought and found behind enemy lines. And their temptation would have been to create a peace ghetto. I mean, these exiles were citizens of Jerusalem, which Shalom is in the name of the city. They are from the city of peace. And their temptation would have been to recreate a city of peace just for themselves. Just a a peace ghetto just for themselves. But God tells them that if they want peace, which they do, it will only be found in the peace of Babylon. And this is not just how the Lord speaks to Israel, but it's how he speaks to Christians. In Matthew 5, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he tells them that they are the salt of the earth. And salt has two purposes um, for meat. Um, Salt, in the ancient world especially, salt was known for what it did to meat. It preserves 
um, meat and it enhances its flavor. So first, preservation. When you had a piece of meat, you would rub salt into it. And what that would do is it would extract the, mo- the moisture out of it and actually preserve the meat. This is what a cured meat is. It's something that just had a lot of salt rubbed into it so the moisture is extracted. And second, um, salt enhances flavor. If you've um, ever cooked with, made something without salt and then added salt to it, you can tell what it does. It just draws the flavor that's already there out. It doesn't create flavor, but it draws the flavor that's already present out of the thing that you're salting. And so what that means is that um, what Christians do in the world, by, because the, the God's spirit dwells in Christians, is they preserve the thing that's there. That means that without Christians in a place, the place will decay. Um, we don't know the effect that um, the church has on the world or that Christians have on Wake Forest. But what we do know is that with, without them here, without you here, um, without the other Christians here at Wake, without the church in Winston-Salem, things would be far worse than they actually are because God, by his spirit, preserves. Um, and also, um, salt draws out flavor. Things are more beautiful here because God, by his spirit, draws out the flavor. We are the salt of the earth. Just as salt exists to preserve and flavor food, Jesus is saying, you exist for the world. So friends, if you are a Christian, God is calling you to root yourself in a place and to find your peace in the peace of that place. The way that Christians have been talking about this um, for a long time is to pursue the common good. We are to have ourselves so tied up in the peace and welfare of the place where we live that we measure our own peace by the peace of that city. We measure our own peace by the peace of that place, by the peace of our campus. Um, a few, few years ago, I led a, a mission trip down to Chattanooga, and there's a ministry in East Chattanooga called Hope for the Inner City. And East Chattanooga, like a lot of inner cities in our country, is a food desert, which means that they don't have access to grocery stores um, I uh, don't have access to public transportation to get them to grocery stores. And there's a man that I met there named Joel Tippins, and he runs a nonprofit called the Grow Hope Urban Farm. And what he does in this vacant lot in the inner city of Chattanooga, he started a farm. And he brings in um, high school age and middle school age kids from the community, and he employs them to work this urban farm. And then um, they do a, like, I think it's a monthly community dinner where they invite the parents and the grandparents of the community to, um, to the farm. And the, the kids serve them this meal of the food that they have, uh, they've raised and they've cooked and prepared. And then they have a conversation about food and about community and um, about what life could look like in a, um, a, a destitute inner city. And the thing I loved about meeting Joel was that he measures his peace by the peace of East Chattanooga. He's, he's committed to the task. If you were to ask him how he was doing, he would tell you about his neighbors in East Chattanooga. He's literally planting a garden and seeking the welfare of his city, and not for his own glory, but for the glory of God. And one of the most beautiful examples I've seen of this, somebody pursuing temporary permanence and seeking the peace of his place, is Sam. Sam Singfield. Um, Sam picked up and moved to Winston two years ago. Uh, when he signed up to do the REF internship, they asked him, "Where are you willing to go anywhere? And he said yes. And uh, he came here to Winston, to, to Wake Forest. Um, and in the past two years, he has given himself to you, especially boys. Girls, I don't really think he gave himself to you. But boys, um, Sam has given himself to you. He's prayed for you. He has tied up his well-being in yours. Um, he's prayed for you. He's cheered you on. He's... Um, 
He's wept for you and with you. Um, He has tied up his well-being in your well-being. And he has kept himself firmly rooted here. When it would have been easy for him to check out and start uprooting and looking towards grad school in Birmingham, um, he has kept his feet in the soil. Uh, Sam, we love you. And because of you, we have a deeper and richer understanding of Jesus and his grace. So thank you um, for rooting yourself here for the past two years. Thank you for, for giving your life away here. Jesus said that whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And you have just done, you've done just that. You have, you have lost your life um, for the sake of Christ here. Uh, we love you. Thank you. So what does it look like for you at Wake Forest to do this? What does it look like to root ourselves and pursue a public peace? One thing I love about this passage is that the Lord doesn't micromanage his people. He doesn't micromanage the Israelites. Instead, he gives them two specifics. He says, seek the flourishing of the city, and he says to pray. So what does this look like for you? Um, For those of you who are graduating, wherever you go, um, find a church that loves Jesus and loves the place where it is. Um, And find people who are rooting themselves there and join them. And for those of you who are returning in the fall, uh, just to ask the question, what could it look like for you to tie up your well-being in the well-being of your classmates? What could it look like for you to tie up your own peace in the peace of the people living on your hall? Um, the peace of the incoming freshmen? To tie up your sense of how am I doing with your professors, um, with the Aramark employees? What would it look like to be so invested in this place that when somebody asks you how you are doing... You answer by telling them stories of how well your neighbors are doing, especially those on the outside, especially the marginalized, those at the bottom of society. And just to encourage you, um, you're doing this. Like I see you doing this. I see the ways that you are caring for um, your classmates. I see the ways that you are caring for um, those who aren't seen on campus. And just to encourage you to keep going, because this is what makes... Um, as you do this, you, one, you are bringing great glory to God. And two, um, wake is more beautiful when you seek your peace and the peace of your neighbor. But here's the thing. If you try to do this on your own, on your own strength, you will fail. If you try to root yourself out of your own strength, you will fail. Or if you try to seek the peace of your place on your own, you will fail. I mean, we, we can't do it on our own. You will either fall into living above place or seeking a private peace or both. Or you, overachievers in the room, um, you'll do it, uh, but you'll just do it for your resume, right? You'll get it, you'll check the boxes, you'll do it for your own resume, but it won't be for God and his glory. It won't be for the blessing of your neighbor. Um, it'll just be one more thing for your resume. And y'all, there is no glory there. And God knows this. He knows that this task is impossible without the gospel. This is what he promises to his people. Look at verses 10 through 14 with me. And he layers his promises here. The first layer, he says, after 70 years, you will return to Jerusalem. But then he says, in the second layer, there will be shalom and a future and a hope. And this great promise is fulfilled in Jesus and his first coming and fully at his return. First, in verse 11, um, the promise for peace and not evil, a future beyond your imagination, hope that will not disappoint. And then verse 12, God guarantees that you will be heard by him when you pray. 
And then verse 13, God promises that your heart will be restored towards him, that your loves will be rightly ordered, that you will find him when you look for him. And then finally in verse 14, ultimately God will restore you, gather you, and bring you home. And this is the great promise of the gospel. See, the only way that it's possible for us to seek the shalom of the city or to seek the peace of this place The only way it's possible for us to tie up our well-being and the well-being of our place is that if somebody else has first tied up their well-being and your well-being and has secured your peace at their expense. And y'all, this is what God has done for us in Jesus. In Isaiah 53, um, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, that brought us shalom. See, on the cross, Jesus purchased and secured your peace. And through faith in Christ and his work for you, he has reconciled you to God. And if you want peace, if you want real peace, real flourishing from the inside out, this is available for you in Christ. And it comes as you stop trying to get peace on your own, but receive his peace that he has purchased for you on the cross. See, Jesus didn't live above place. He was born into a place. He's born in Bethlehem. And he was from a place. He was from Nazareth. And in his incarnation, God affirms the goodness of place in our calling to it. Even out-of-the-way places, especially out-of-the-way places like Nazareth and Winston-Salem. And it was time for him to die. He didn't flee, but Jesus went to the cross. He wasn't in pursuit of private peace. He didn't go just for himself. But the public execution of the Son of God has secured a public peace for all who trust in him. I have one final thought for this. And as you think about this um, and what it looks like to tie up your well-being and the well-being of a place, I want you to think about terroir. Terroir is this this French word that has to do with place. It it refers to the particular place in which um, a a vine grows and the best wines are wines that exhibit their terroir. Like you can actually taste the place that they're from. Um, A friend of mine, Peter Rowan, says this. He says, uh, that this terroir is the majesty of Burgundy. Burgundy is a, a region in France. And it's the great domain of two incredibly famous wines um, that I actually had never heard of before I heard the story from Peter. So I don't know much about wine. Um, but the great domain of the Romanet Conti, which is across the street from the Romanet Saint Vivant. And yet these wines, which are made exclusively of the same grape, they're both made from Pinot Noir grapes, they taste remarkably different. So what does terroir and wine have to do with what I'm talking about? Well, we believe that a core characteristic of the church is that it is deeply rooted in its neighborhood. It's deeply involved in the concerns of the place of where it is, and it reflects the specific place where it's found. Leslie Newbegin um, writes that the church is God's embassy in a specific place. And so when this happens, when the people of God root themselves in a specific place, seeking a public peace... The church will be more and more lovely, expressing the particular beauty of the place and challenging the place's particular sin. There's a famous French writer named Stendhal who used to say this. He said, without those magnificent wines of Romanet Conti, I would think nowhere in the world was uglier. Yet, it is considered a pilgrimage destination of any wine enthusiast. The ugliest place will be beautiful as the church seeks to love it more and more. And so friends, as you go out, know this, that Wake Forest and wherever you go will be beautiful as God's people love it more and more. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we thank you that you have 
purpose for us and a call for us to be rooted in a place, in the place where we're rooted with your people, to seek um, the peace of that place. Uh, knowing that you have bound up your well-being and our well-being, um, and you call us to do the same with our neighbors. Um, Lord, I thank you for these friends who are here tonight, and Lord, I pray for them as they uh, wrestle through this wherever they are, that um, they would know first and foremost what you have done for them, and and tying up your well-being with them, um, Lord, in your work for them on the cross. Lord, we thank you for this, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to stand, we're going to sing one more song.